Sam, if there's one thing I've said on this podcast many times before, it's that I love audiobooks. They let me bring my stories with me anywhere I go, and I've listened to audiobooks while driving, cooking, working out, traveling, and even recently, kind of weirdly, well, at the dentist. (laughs) Our sponsor, Audible, can help bring your books with you wherever you go. Right now, our U.S. listeners can get a 30-day free trial of Audible, the destination for audiobooks and podcasts, when they go to audibletrial.com forward slash fanbookspod. On Audible, you can download and listen to thousands of audiobooks, including one that I myself narrated and catch up on all of your reading today. That's audibletrial.com forward slash fanbookspod. And to make it even easier, that link is in the show description. Happy listening! This is Fantastic Books and How to Read Them. The fantasy book review podcast for fantasy fanatics, book nerds, and lovers of lore and stories. Covering some of the most beloved fantasy series, as well as brand new novels. With your hosts, Sam and Anna Furman. Let's see what we're reading this week. Welcome back, fantastic listeners. This is Sam. And Anna. And this week, we are covering Mistborn, The Final Empire, chapters 20 and 21. I don't think we have any other announcements. However, we would love your support by following us at fantasticbookspod.com, as well as our other social media sources on Facebook and Instagram. We really love the support. We love hearing from our listeners, either with fan theories, suggestions, or just chit-chatting. So, Don't be shy. Reach out. We love building this community together. And in addition to everything Sam just mentioned on our website, we also have things like reading lists and other suggested books so you can catch up on all the fantasy content that we don't always necessarily get to cover on the podcast because there are other things that we read and we post about them on our social media or on our Goodreads account as well. So definitely check us out there. And don't forget, some sweet merch. <laughs> Definitely sweet stickers, mugs. Tote bag. T-shirts. Yeah, all the fun things. Yeah. But I think that's pretty much it. I'm ready to get into chapter 20. We're about halfway through the book now. Yeah, I can't believe it. Oh, you might want to update everyone and tell them that you have finished Well of Ascension. Uh, I have been on the war path. Cruise to Well of Ascension. Absolutely loved it. I'm like a quarter of the way through... The Hero of Ages. No spoilies for me. No, no spoilies. <laughs> just loving the ride. So I think I'm on chapter 26 of Well of Ascension. And that's a third, a quarter of the way through the book. Mm, yeah. It's quite a hefty one. But I'm plugging along at it. Sam just whipped through it somehow in like three days. So I felt like a lot of running and biking. I was doing the audiobook or in between OR cases. I had it on my phone on PDF and I was just ripping through it. Well, I will give spoilers up to the end of Mistborn, but that's really all I can provide in terms of discussion of the trilogy. Just noted, because I'm way further behind than you. That's all right. It's all about the journey. Exactly. And speaking of the journey... Chapter 20. This is a pretty fun chapter for me. I enjoy Vin's... Wait, you're going to breeze past this blurb that seems so important where he first mentions the like shadow mist ghost thing oh this is 
monumental. I know you probably know more than I do, but this seems pivotal to development of whatever the deepness is. The Lord Ruler's blurb talks about this shadowy thing that's made out of fog or mist that's following him. I think he's referenced it in other blurbs that it kills somebody eventually in his party. Yes. Quan? Yes, Quan does. Okay. So Quan is the one who first discovered him, yes? Quan discovered the Hero of Ages and was killed by this mist spirit. Which I know from how far I've read in book two that it's haunting Vin now. There's the ominous proclamation from the Lord Ruler at the end of this book that he says the people don't know what he does for them. So even though he's not supposed to be like the Lord Ruler, he was doing something and I guess potentially did defeat the deepness. But this creature makes a comeback in book two. And that's all I know about it. Yes. No spoilies. (laughs) I know you, you know more. I'm keeping my lips sealed. All right, fine. Let's talk about Vin. Yeah. This chapter, according to the annotations by Brandon Sanderson, is one of his least favorite. He feels like it was a summary chapter, and he said he specifically wrote it to add more scenes to the book, but he didn't really know where to put them in, and so he added them here. So we get the scene with Vin thinking about the development of her relationship with different characters... She talks about some of the other ska that she sees throughout the city. And then she has this training session with Marsh where she gets to talk about her history a little bit. So it's just sort of like a an info chapter about Vin and about the world. And I thought it was really important, but I thought it was interesting that Brandon Sanderson said he didn't really like this chapter. I liked it because, again, we get more information on Vin, especially Marsh, who's a bit of an enigma. Most importantly, I love a good explanation of a magic system in more detail. Right, we got it with Kelsier, the mechanics of the magic system, but Marsh is someone who's really pushed the boundaries of what Allomancy can and can't do. And having him work with Vin gives her a whole new perspective on the way that different metals can work, especially because bronze, which is what Marsh burns, is overlooked quite a bit. Yeah, I think people underestimate Seekers because when you encounter either a Smoker or a Mistborn, being able to produce a cloud, a copper cloud that hides Allomancy, a lot of people don't know what they're burning. However, Vin has the advantage of being able to pierce a copper cloud and detect what an Allomancer is burning. But I think also from Marsh's perspective... Sure, he's forwarded by copper clouds, but he does explain this isn't just a throwaway skill. Like, there's a lot of nuance to it. You can really detect what people are or are not burning. It's not just, yes, is there a Mistborn or no, is there not a Mistborn? Right, because Mistborn are very rare. There's other Mistings out there, and knowing what you're getting to, especially in a conflict, will really help you prepare. Exactly. Because you can say how many... Mistings or Mistborn are in the area. What type are there? How close are they? I think that's invaluable. And we do see the skills that he teaches Vin come up later. She starts to be able to use them and differentiate between the rhythms of different alimantic pulses. Yeah. And then he also explains the origins of things like the internal pushing or external pulling 
like metals and how those terms came to be. They're related to those abilities. Yeah. And throughout books two and three, without revealing any spoilers, Vin ends up using this ability very frequently. I figured she would. It seems like it's a ability unique to her, the ability to pierce two copper clouds. I figured that would give her a huge advantage. Either way, I do love this fine tuning. I think for me, as a fantasy reader, I have a higher appreciation for a hard hard magic system. I like knowing the rules and applications of certain abilities and powers and knowing what the creative limitations or restraints are and how characters overcome those challenges. I think, you know, in a soft magic system, it makes it a little less believable for me and kind of shatters the illusion a bit. Mm-hmm. Brandon so. Sanderson's good at making the hard magic systems. Some of the other books I've read have both systems at once, which is a really cool combination because you have different types of characters with different abilities. But I like how well developed this system is and how it fits in with some other magic systems I've seen him develop and they have similar sets of logic to them that make them feel very real and applicable to different situations. But I like when the characters then take a hard magic system and get really creative with what they can do. But before Vin gets to her whole training with Marsh, she's traveling through the scenery between Luthadel and Felice. We get these little snippets of what the Ska do when they're not either in the forges or mills or performing servant tasks. We see children shaking ash from the trees so that the nobles won't get any ash on their clothes while walking by. And just, again, such a sharp contrast in standards of living between the Ska and the nobility. I like that we're constantly reminded of that, and I think that that's the whole point of this plot, is to improve the lives of the Ska. And even Vin in this scene, she's getting caught up in her life as Valette, and it is easy to kind of just move away from the the sufferings of the ska as a reader and brandon Sanderson does a good job peppering them in in a way that reminds us what the world is like because vin is here thinking i glad i can at least still go to balls even though i'm still recovering from my incident with the inquisitor and she's thinking about her frustrations with ellen and maybe he hasn't been at so many balls so maybe he's not as interested in her as she thought and she's a little bit thinking about Shan Alarial. Even Vin is easily distracted from the suffering of the Ska. Right, because at the end of the day, she is a Ska. She knows so much suffering firsthand and why they're fighting for it. But for the first time, she is enjoying an elevated lifestyle. And so she does get these moments to remind herself what it is she's fighting for. And even though... Kelsier and his crew are treating their ska better, so that's more of what she's seeing. So once she finishes her traveling here and arrives at Mansion Renew, she's seeing all of the ska who are working for Kelsier and Renew loading up different crates of goods. They're living better lives, so I think it's easier for her to turn a blind eye and just say, oh, well, I'm helping improve the lives of a few ska here and there when there's so much more at stake. And she does end up rising to the occasion but that's a lot of responsibility for someone who's 16. So I see why it is easy for her to get caught up in the balls and the valette and everything going on there. Yeah, for sure. 
But what's going on at Mansion Renew is that they are loading a bunch of weapons into crates and they're going to send them on the canal boats to the rebellion in their camps um in the mountains yep but they're going to make it look like they're shipping a bunch of it to other places so it's part of their front it's part of renew's disguise that he's been buying up a bunch of weapons as part of the increasing house wars but as vin is seeing all of these ska loading up crates She's overhearing all these conversations between the people who are working about the survivor of Hathson and the 11th medal. And it's all this sort of mystique, intrigue, rumor, and there's a little bit of reverence with it. Yeah, the, it's very elevated. They're putting Kelsier up on a pedestal. And I think that that's something that is extraordinarily essential to the way that this book turns out is Kelsier's charisma and his cult of personality and you and i were getting really nervous when we first yeah, read this. the we're first s- read especially chapter 21 i was very worried that kelsier was going to let this all go to his head and that he was gonna become a wannabe lord ruler well don't they start calling him lord kelsier next chapter yeah so the parallels were making me so nervous it was not very subtle he was just letting his reputation get out of control yeah and you know kelsier had this dark side of him that was ever present despite his charismatic side and lightheartedness mm-hmm. and i was like oh here we go you know it's gonna be a descent into darkness kind of thing i really thought that this book the way this trilogy was going to go was that book one would be them trying to defeat the lord ruler it wasn't going to succeed and then kelsier becoming sort of a lord ruler in himself and book two being them getting all their shit back together will they rein Kelsier back in and maybe have to confront him about who he's become and then book three would be the final showdown with the Lord Ruler and <laughs> I'm obviously way wrong but that's a pretty traditional route for trilogies to take yeah so I was so surprised when by the end of book one I thought we were where we were where we were going to be at the end of book three yeah no and that's really something refreshing and unique with this trilogy the lord ruler being defeated was just the beginning and i think as i've observed through book two and into book three the story's really on such a grander scale and what's actually happening to this world okay and i'm very excited for you to see i'm working on it (laughs) i know i just have been gobbling these stories up I really enjoy the world Brandon Sanderson created. I think this is a very unique place. I'm usually very character driven and the characters have all been phenomenal. Mm-hmm. But I think this is the first time where plot wise too, I'm just so excited to see what happens to this world. Well, I don't really know what's happening anymore because the trilogy took such a different turn. That's one of the huge parts keeping me interested in the trilogy is it's not feeling like book two is that filler book because I always feel like that with trilogies it's like oh, okay we have a plan it failed book two is like regroup restructure our crew is at their weakest but they're gonna get ready by book three yeah it's always you know the apex and and that was summed up in the middle part of this book and then they moved on from it yeah I do like that I don't know where the trilogy is going at all anymore 
That being said, Kelsier does have a conversation with Vin that they are going to be shipping these supplies to the mountains to aid the resistance, but we need spies in other ska to see renew shipping the materials out to create more gossip and intrigue about why he's cultivated so much arms and supplies. Right, it's part of the plan for the house war because people don't know who House Renew is aligning themselves with. But if it gets out that he's been buying this many weapons, he looks like a good ally. And that places them into more of the house war nonsense that's going the on. Gossip, as it were. <laughs> and it's also really helpful because it was Vin's suggestion initially to use the canal boats from way back in the beginning, that contract they had with Cayman's crew. And they're going to use the contact to get Marsh into the ministry. So the canal boats this time are serving for two purposes because Marsh himself is actually on his way to Mansion Renew right now. And then he'll move on from there to infiltrate the ministry as well as Kelsier will also be going on the canal boats to inspect the armies. And he's going to relieve Ham for a little bit with Yeadon. A lot of the characters are moving towards those caves in the east at the end of this chapter. What I thought was a fun little observation in the annotation section from Brandon Sanderson was that originally he had written the section as Vin traveling to the mountains and Kelsier staying behind. Oh. But he realized that made no sense because she just recovered recently from her Injury from the Inquisitor? Yes, and just got back to court nobility in the balls. And he thought about it and was like, wait, this makes no sense for her to all of a sudden be like leaving again for a while. I don't really know what she would do going to visit the army, so I agree that it doesn't make any sense. It's also book-wise really smart for Kelsier to lie low for a little bit and get out of Luthadel because of all the rumors that are going around. And people now know about his scars, so if they see someone with the scars on their arms from the pits of Hathson, it'd be a dead giveaway that that's right. Kelsier. So it's smart for him to leave for a little while, let the house war develop on its own, and then come back later. Oh, for sure. One thing that Vin does say here, which was, I thought, going to be really important, and it sort of is, is that she has a thought about Kelsier as a leader. And it says that, He's a good leader because he's not afraid to incorporate new ideas no matter when they occur to him. And I think that is true for the first part of the book. But by the second half of the book, Kelsier's got so many plans going on. In particular, I'm thinking of the scene when the army is destroyed and he's like, no, we have to keep going and doesn't really give his crew a chance to say no. It's interesting that she sees Kelsier as such a good leader at the beginning. And I think... He's a different kind of leader by the end. He's more an inspiring figure and not necessarily the best leader, but he does get the job done, technically. He's very charismatic. I don't know if he's as thoughtful as a leader, and in a way, he inspires others through his actions, but I don't think he's necessarily someone who... I don't know how to describe it, because he does get people to accomplish things. He technically orders people to do things, but I don't think he strategizes as a cohesive team with others. I think he has a very loyal team, but I don't know if he 
brings him into his confidences. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. But I thought it was also interesting that Vin is thinking these things about Kelsier because in book two, there is a lot of references to other crew members saying, oh, Vin, you used to pine over Kelsier and have this romantic interest in him. And I just never got that in book one. No, I think maybe there was like a sense of surreal awe over like a misborn and like learning the ways in very master and apprentice. Yeah. But I never thought of it in like a romantic crush kind of way. It was more of like, he's amazing and I want to emulate that because I want to be powerful and strong and independent and resilient too. That's exactly how I read it. And sometimes to the point of being frustrated with Kelsier. Yeah. So I'm wondering if he had a lot of pushback from readers who wanted romance between those characters and he has to keep reiterating that it wasn't really there. Yeah, it just didn't fit. No, it just doesn't make sense with their characters at all to me. During this chapter, Kelsier does have Vin work with Marsh to learn more about burning burning bronze and learning more about being a seeker. And I do appreciate Marsh's character a lot. He's a very curt and straightforward kind of person. And during this interaction, we actually get them both to open up about their past to each other. Granted, a lot of it is from (laughs) Vin's nudging with soothing Alamancy. It is definitely a little bit of a feather in her cap where even though Marsh does pick up on it, he's impressed how subtle her touch is. Yeah, she's following more of Breeze's technique. Oh, for sure. And I like that Vin does take what she learns from the other individual mistings and uses it more effectively than the way Kelsier taught her. So again, in this chapter, learning from Marsh is a lot more effective than what she had already learned from Kelsier. And he tells her what we talked about, what we talked about a little bit before, where different allomantic pulses can be read and interpreted. They either push or they pull, and there's different beats or rhythms to them that indicate to whoever's burning bronze what metals are being burned. So Vin learns all about that from Marsh, and he just is really impressed with how good she is from the get-go. Yeah, she can tell pulse origins. She can distinguish if um, a metal's a pushing or pulling variety. Marsh is definitely impressed with her natural skill Mm -hmm. and talent. Vin's a little bit confused at first about why burning brass is effective, but Marsh does say that copper doesn't actually change your opponents. It just changes something within you that stops your allomantic pulses from going out, essentially, is sort of my understanding of it. Yeah. Marsh makes a great point where he says, What's the greater advantage, being immune but of ignorant of a soother's intentions or instead knowing from your bronze exactly which emotions he's trying to suppress? Yes, that seems important. I'm sure Vin's going to do that in the future books and I can see from your expression that you can't tell me anymore. (laughs) I say nothing. (laughs) So I think that it's really useful. This is going to be really, really helpful. After a little bit more discussion on the different dynamics of burning 
Bronze, Marsh and Vin do end up opening up about their own life experiences where Vin fills Marsh in a little bit about how, you know, growing up ska and living on the streets and just having a very disturbing childhood. But she finds Marsh had not necessarily the same, but also trauma and stress in his childhood because she was asking him where he learned about allomancy and misting abilities because Kelsier has all of them and he learned them as an adult, but Marsh has been doing this for so much longer. He says the way that Kelsier feels about the nobility is the way that he feels about the obligators because the obligators took Marsh and Kelsier's mother. So I think it's unfortunately disturbingly tragic that Marsh ends up becoming an obligator and an inquisitor in the end because he's, he's so obsessed with them because he hates them so much. He became the thing he swore to destroy. Pretty much. Anakin prophecy fulfilling itself. (laughs) There's a couple of very good lines in this chapter that I absolutely loved. At one point where Vin is comparing Marsh to Kelsier, she says, You're the older brother, Marsh. You were the responsible one. You joined the rebellion. Instead of working with the thieves, it must have hurt that Kelsier was the one everyone liked. Oh, but then she realized is it's not just everyone. It was specifically Mare liked Kelsier better than Marsh. So Marsh clearly had romantic feelings towards her and she picked Kelsier in the end. And I think when Mare died, it probably affected Marsh extraordinarily because I'm sure deep down a little bit, he blames Kelsier for that. Oh, for sure. And that's a really tough thing. And then to see Kelsier come in and take charge of working with the Rebellion, which is something that was Marsh's passion and Marsh's thing for so long, it's kind of hurtful in a little way. Like, I'm sure he's glad Kelsier is now interested in these important things. Yeah, but... But at the same time, it's like, that's my thing. Yeah. Like, no, get your own thing. And even worse to come in, do it better, be loved by more and like everything else. Like how can, how does your pride, your ego, like it all not get affected? It definitely does. But I think Marsh can see through Kelsier's charisma Mm -hmm. and he says things like, oh, well, Kelsier likes people to fawn over him. He does murder people just because they're noble. He does have these faults that other people might see as good. Like, oh, he's so committed to getting rid of the nobility or, oh, he's so amazing. But Marsh can see through that. Yeah. And he's, I think it's good to have a character say it out loud. Like Kelsier's not a Mary Sue. He's not a Kavoth where everyone just thinks he's, oh, he's the best, you know, so cool. So great. It's good to have a character knock you down a peg. Oh, yeah. And every once in a while, Kelsier does need that. (laughs) He definitely does. And even Marsh thinks that this plan is going to fail in the long run. But he says that it's important because what they're doing and what he can accomplish by getting into the ministry will help the rebellion for generations to come after them. But then they succeed so well, so it doesn't even really matter, I guess. Yeah. I really did enjoy this chapter. There's definitely a lot of good quotes in here for me. I feel that dialogue is very important to me in a good story. And one of the thoughts that Vin has after her conversation with the Marsh is, 
that they really don't hate each other. What would that be like? And after some thought, she decided that the concept of loving siblings was a little like the alimantic pulse length she was supposed to be looking for. They were just too unfamiliar for her to understand at the moment. But she'll grow to understand them. Yes. And it's just, you know, just clever writing. And I just really enjoy the way that chapter ends. Yeah, I like the paralleling in it. And like you said, dialogue in this chapter was so important and it accomplished a lot. We get a lot of backstory information. We get a lot of understanding how characters are feeling about the plot and Kelsier, but also how characters feel about themselves and their own abilities and their own past. And that's a really important thing, especially when they're working together as a team to know more about each other and how they work together or maybe not together. Chapter 21. Man, there's so much that goes on in this chapter. Plot-wise, what it means for the future of the story, cool points, concerning points, and I'm just so excited to break this down. We also get our first big chunk of the logbook from the Lord Ruler. Kelsier is reading this while he's traveling to the caves where he'll meet with Yedon and the soldiers to essentially do an exchange with Ham and lead them for a month. But this is a cool way that we can see more of the story in a big piece rather than these little snippets per chapter. And it's nice that it shows Sazed was able to complete multiple copies and divvy them out to everyone. I think what's more important about this is that it's paralleling the events that Kelsier's going through, essentially. Yeah. This hero is doubting himself, but also at the same time saying he's very arrogant. And Kelsier, as we see at the end of this chapter, is sort of headed in the same way. And it's interesting because Kelsier is making commentary on this saying, oh, well, maybe we shouldn't take this too seriously. We shouldn't read it at face value. People don't really see their own actions as unjustified. And that's exactly how he feels about himself. Yeah. And this is the point when I was first reading where I was concerned about Kelsier's development as the leader of this rebellion. I felt like he was turning a corner and becoming a little too intense. Like he'd been walking the razor's edge up until this point. But I think this chapter made me feel a little bit more nervous about the way he was headed and the lengths that he was willing to go to to prove to everyone that the rebellion was worth it. Mm, No, it's a good point. I think going into this chapter the first time, when people started calling him Lord Kelsier, I was getting a little dog ears up. I was definitely skeptical, wondering where this was headed. You picked up on that immediately when we were reading it. You were like, Lord, he's not Lord Kelsier. What's going on? Yeah. It's good development, too, because we haven't seen Yeadon in a while. And you can see through the way he is referring to Kelsier as Lord Kelsier and deferring to his authority, Yeadon has warmed up to him quite a bit and changed his tune. And I like that there was a time lapse of that and we didn't have to see it all explained. Yeah, there are a couple different time jumps throughout this plot. And I like that it doesn't need to have to be explained like, oh, two months have passed or whatever. Right. And at least for Yeadon and his character development through this story, I like that we go from the skeptical buyer so to speak, (laughs) when he's conscripting the crew for the job to this point where he's involved, he's very excited and optimistic about the possibilities. 
In the annotations, Brandon Sanderson said originally it was flipped where Kelsier went to Yeadon and not the other way around. Yeah, I'm excited to see some of those deleted scene chapters he has on his website. Yeah, we just discovered those. So maybe when all this is said and done, we'll do like a fun fan episode where we go over a bunch of that kind of material and maybe fan theories or whatever. I think that would be a really good idea. Another thing that he brought up in the annotations was that Vin was supposed to go. Yeah, and we were mentioning that earlier when we were going over chapter 20. It's interesting sometimes when you're writing something where you kind of get an idea stuck in your head, even if it's not a good one. I'm glad he had enough foresight to realize it just didn't work for the book. It also was a good chance for Kelsier to show off quite a bit. And that's what he does right at the beginning of this chapter. He's thinking about this is his only chance to show off and prove how powerful of an allomancer he is to the troops, give them a boost of confidence, but he's really hamming it up. He immediately, once they start getting to the landing spot, uses allomancy in daylight, which is something that's pretty taboo. Yeah, it seems like no one ever does this since it would draw the ire and attention of the Steel Ministry and the Inquisitors. He even thinks to himself, time to be a bit ostentatious. And I get his perspective to be flippant and bold and show the troops, hey, we are powerful. We should not be afraid. We are against Lord Ruler. However, I think people are so used to a certain way of life that this is just such a drastic change. I think it gives a lot of false hope, too, especially the fight at the end of the chapter. Oh, I cannot wait to go over that. It was such a great read for me. All right, well, let's get into more of what Kelsier is doing then. Yes. Because he's arrived at the rebel hideout, which is in the mountains and caves. Similar scenario to the location the pits of Hathson are located. So the environment is quite similar. And when Kelsier does end up arriving there, he gets very nervous about the cracks in the ground, like he's having flashbacks to it. I did really like the line where he says let them see my weakness and let them see me overcome it. Yes. Because I think that's a great thing for a leader to be relatable to, but also inspire their followers. And it definitely creates a humanity moment. I don't think Kelsey would be as captivating and inspirational if he had no fears, had no doubts, but to show people he's just like them and can conquer his fears really inspires the troops. It makes them really relatable. Yeah. We also made a new character, Captain Demu. Yes, and he becomes a great character throughout the series. He's really eager in this chapter, and I know we see him in Well of Ascension. I'm assuming he becomes a larger player, but I like what we've seen so far from him. He seems upstanding, a little bit stiff. Honorable, eager, classic like young pup with everything to prove. Yeah, yeah, I like it. Demu escorts Kelsier to the caves to meet up with Yidin. Yidin has just gotten so excited because Kelsier has brought him over 240 more soldiers. The army is growing and he's getting really on board with Kelsier. He admits that he didn't think Kelsier would be able to help him as much as he had. So everyone's feeling pretty good, especially because Kelsier's coming to like give the troops a boost of morale. Yeah. One small detail that we glossed over just a moment ago was that we get a little bit of information about what the pits of Hathson are like. Yeah. 
And this is the first time Brandon Sanderson describes it. So he talks about how the pits of Haston are these like deep, deep fissures in the ground. And you have to recover these ATM crystals. But using allomancy in the caves destroys the crystals. So it has to be done by hand, which is why prisoners get sent down there. He would have to crawl down in the dark for hours and hours, stretching his hand into these jagged rock holes to find the geodes. For ATM is where he gets all the scars. Prisoners of Hathson have to recover an ATM geode and their life gets extended one week. And we get this really intense visualization of how Kelsier and other prisoners have gotten these scars by reaching in these deep fissures that are lined with sharp crystals where the geodes lie in the center. So you're just shredding your arms, hoping beyond hope as you reach in each time that there's an ATM geode in the darkness. It was a little bit like Kavoth at the very beginning of the book when people didn't know how he got his scars. Yeah. And some people said it was from the pits and some people said it was because he fought an Inquisitor. And it's a lot like, like I said, Kavoth, where these rumors start to swirl around and you get this persona that's more Kelsier than Kelsier is. Yeah. And he definitely does take after Kavoth with his flashiness and dramatics. I do like this little tidbit of world building where we finally get the revelation of, you want to know how I got these scars? <laughs> but it is uh, pretty cool to get some answers with that. But then we move to Kelsier and Yidin joining Ham. Kelsier is being called Lord Kelsier around Ham. And as soon as Yidin walks away, Ham is like, really? Lord Kelsier? <laughs> Kelsier takes it a little bit in stride. And doesn't really bend to Ham's jokingness. Yeah. But Ham is also being serious. He's like, you know, how do you do it? Yidin hated you and now he loves you. And there's a good quote because he's shrugging it off, but he's saying Yidin's never been part of an effective team before, that he's realizing we might have a chance, that, you know, he's really getting inspired and excited. But at the end of the day, it really is just Kelsier. Though I have seen... Some fan theories that he is a way more powerful soother or rider than we gave him credit for. Oh, that's and, really quite clever. You know, when he was teaching Vin or the others, he would kind of purposely be a little sloppy with it. But how he, you know, created so much gravitas is because he was actually like an expert this whole time. That's interesting, because Vin later does say that Kelsier's expertise is pushing and pulling and not soothing or rioting, but maybe we've been misled. I mm. like that, that that's a good theory. So while they're in the caves, Kelsier wants to inspect the outfit, see how things are organized. So he goes and looks at the two entrances, three entrances, my mistake, and questions some of the guards. And he's doing like a little bit of testing their loyalty but he's also doing it in a way where he praises them so i think it's really boosting morale and lifting spirits the whole time he's here but the only person who's not impressed is ham he's not saying that the plan's not going well and that the army's not doing what they need it to do but he is skeptical about what they're doing in a larger sense yeah and ham has always been very philosophical in that sense and knowing Kelsier for years and seeing this dramatic change in his behavior and how people are responding to him, he definitely has concerns. He's also saying that these 
are not soldiers. They can't take the garrison. And even if they do and they start fighting the Lord Ruler, they're going to get completely slaughtered. Yeah, he's definitely looking at the big picture. Yeah, Kelsier thinks that things are going to go more according to plan and that the distraction by attacking the pits of Hathson will work perfectly. But Ham's also saying, well, what's after this? What if we get them to hold the city? What are we going to do? Right. Ham's kind of mentally deviating from the heist. He's looking at this as, you know, these are real people. We're not just here to let them take the fall for us after we hypothetically collect the ATM and run off, you know? We can't just let all these people die for us. That's not right. I'm sure it's because Ham has spent the past two months working face-to-face with all these people. He's gotten to know them, whereas Kelsier is running so many different plans through his mind, I think he's looking at the scale a bit differently and not necessarily seeing the consequences of all his actions. And Ham, in a way, to a fault, he's a good leader, but a bad general because he can't just command people. He He's too empathetic. Exactly. He forms these really strong connections with people. And yes, you can argue that really breeds a high level of loyalty, but then he will act in their best interest, even if it goes against a larger scale plan, such as the heist. Even Ham says out loud, I'm a bodyguard, not a general. And then Kelsier internally thinks, I'm a thief, not a prophet. So the plan is already asking them to be something much bigger than they think themselves to be. And it's snowballing quite quickly. Yes. The plot definitely goes off the rails, even in the next few chapters and leading up to the end with our expectations (laughs) versus reality. Uh, Yeah, it went haywire. But it's funny because I didn't even pick up on this, but Kelsier's internal monologue says, I'm a thief, not a prophet. And yes, he was kind of spreading propaganda about him being the survivor of Hatson and having the 11th medal and taking down the Lord Ruler. But I never really put one and two together as far as like that was the beginning of a launching point. It's also paralleling exactly what the person, what Elendi's feeling. He doesn't think that he is the hero of ages. That's a really good point. That's why I was getting so nervous at this point. I was Mm. like, no, you're not seeing that you're going to follow the same exact path, Kelsier. It's not going to go well. Can you do what you're supposed to do? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Stick to your plan. At this point, Kelsier does tell Ham that he'll be taking over for him for a while with Yidin. That way the troops get used to following Yidin's command, and that Ham is free to return to Luthadel. Ham's a little upset about this at first. I think, again, because he has created this connection with all of the soldiers. But yeah. then he puts a face on and he's like, oh, great, I get to go home. I don't have to wear a uniform anymore. I'm not really sure if Ham is happy or if he's just pretending to be happy in this moment, but he is being replaced by Yidin at the very least. There is a really cool aside... And by cool, I mean troubling, (laughs) where (laughs) Ham and Kelsey are having this conversation and he does like marvel at how beautiful these caves are where the stalactites and stalagmites drip and fuse together and make these swirling patterns of colorful stone. And Kelsier thinks to himself that because of his time in the pits of Hassan, this will never be beautiful. He'll... You just kind of get this dark edge to him, and it becomes more prevalent at the end of the chapter. But Kelsier's 
disturbing thoughts are interrupted by some potentially even more concerning thoughts from Ham about whether or not Nobleman and Scott are physically different from one another. Yeah, this was a really strange concept, and then it was never really followed through the rest of the story, but the gist of it is that Ska have an easier time reproducing while nobility do not, and that nobility then have allomancy on their side and misborn. Ham's thought is that maybe they are meant to rule over the Ska, that the nobility have almost a divine right to rule. But then there's, in capitals, this thing called the balance. And I don't know if it's elaborated on even more or if it's just a small bit of world building here, but it's that it's some sort of phenomena that the Lord Ruler has in place to ensure that there's not too many noblemen for the Ska to support and that there's always going to be lots of Ska to do the work. So I don't know if it's just a feature of their world, but... it was a little concerning to me that Ham was thinking this way, considering he's got technically mixed blood if he's a mixed misting. Right, and Kelsier being a misborn. Right, so uh, I think he's just nervous that they're doing the wrong thing. It's the same conversation he had with Vin a while ago where he said, if the Lord Ruler is God and everything God said is good, we shouldn't be going against what the God says. And I like that there's these philosophical things in here, but this one felt a little bit stranger. Yeah. It was a little out of place, and it's not really addressed again, this difference between the other groups. I know Ellen mentions it a little bit when he's talking to Vin at the very, very beginning of the book, and they first meet. You're smiling, so I think there's a spoiler you can't tell me. I say nothing. (laughs) Darn it, darn it, darn it. All right. Which is funny, because I never would have thought twice about this conversation, other than the fact that we're dissecting this section for the episode Uh uh-huh in my mind i kind of wrote this off after the first time i read it as philosophical musings by ham slash giving the reader an opportunity to doubt and question if what they're doing is right oh i mean if there's a callback thousand pages later that's good planning on an author's part Mm -hmm. so i'll again put that in my back pocket (laughs) save it for later I think the part about Alamancy is really interesting. Ham does say, well, Scott think differently. They're more timid. They're not rebellious. But I think that's a social circumstance. That's a social circumstance and, again, a millennia of oppression. Exactly. But then they just kind of drop the conversation. That's it. There's a bit of a transition in the middle of the chapter. And we get a time lapse where Kelsier is actually visiting these troops for several weeks throughout the time, showing them different aspects of Alamancy. He's steel pushing, he's pewter burning, so he's doing these things that they're all calling Alamancy magics. But he doesn't explain to them what he's doing. Ska have never, for the most part, actually seen a Mistborn or a Misting in action. So they're getting this idea that Kelsier is some sort of trumped-up magical persona as their leader, And it's working well to inspire the troops again, but I think it is, as we end up seeing with what happens with the the army, not going to play out well because they get overconfident. Right, and this whole scenario that's about to unfold is Kelsier's attempt to instill confidence, but it just goes way out of proportion. 
So I like the concept. It just, in application, there's just so much that goes awry. But Kelsier does ask Ham if he has any discipline problems with any of the soldiers. Are there ones that have doubts that are thinking of leaving? There's a couple, but Kelsier wants to make an example out of someone. And so they find this guy, Bilg, who is... A very large set man, uh, a good swordsman, a little charismatic in his own way. But he's pessimistic about this entire scenario. Yes, he does not think they will succeed and they are being led to slaughter, which is a very valid concern. Because it's essentially true. Yeah, they're cooped up in this cave. They're not allowed to leave. Essentially, despite how much you might believe in the plan, if you can't go home, you're kind of held hostage. And that's what Kelsier's trying to balance is the fact that they can't go home. So he needs everyone to be 100% committed, which is why he has to find somebody who's sowing seeds of dissent and make an example of them. And he has this all going on during, I think, a feast. Yeah, like they're having dinner. It's like a big dinner. So everyone is there. And he starts to riot Bilg as he's making a speech. A speech, yes. And getting Bilg to you know, shake his head and grumble about everything that Kelsier is saying. And I think that Bilg actually has a pretty good point. Kelsier is saying that, oh, we need to defeat the garrison of Luthadel. Bilg's being realistic. There's no way they're going to be able to defeat the garrison. They're not well-trained soldiers. Yeah. They don't have the same resources. So like you said, Bilg thinks they're literally getting sent on a suicide mission. And Kelsier is playing this up. He is being very much like Kavoth, where he is making this a dramatic, almost like a play for the rest of the soldiers. He's creating almost a good cop, bad cop scenario. Oh, for sure. Where he says, you insult me. You know very well why the men aren't allowed to leave. Why do you want to go, soldier? Are you that eager to sell out your companions to the Lord Ruler? A few quick boxings in exchange for 4,000 lives. Which is not what Bilk said at all. Bilk's concerned about the validity of what they're doing. Or the fact that he might want to go home to his loved ones. Right. So Kelsier makes this a point of saying that Bilk is speaking treason. Who is there a soldier amongst the ranks that will defend the honor of this rebellion? And who will be his champion? Where we have... All these soldiers stand up, and he selects Captain Demu. Demu being smaller, younger, less experienced. It's set up to be this David and Goliath standoff between Bilg and Demu. Symbolically, it's a great move on Kelsier's part. Yeah. Knowing that he's the puppet master behind this whole setup is terrifying as a reader. Right. He should not be playing people against one another in this way. And the emotional manipulation behind it seems really sketchy. Oh, it's very cunning. Yeah, it just seems like an unfair way to get people on your side. Even though I know that that's how this world works. There is rioting and soothing. Just It seems like a low bar kind of play. Yeah, this is not an altruistic moment for Kelsier. He's not winning the people over through merit or being altruistic. He is being deceitful. And we get this really dark side of him in a moment, too, where these two men are standing off. Each of them have a sword. In the beginning of the confrontation, we immediately see Demu's lack of experience against Bilg's strength and 
swordsmanship. And ex- yeah, swordsmanship. And it's not looking good. So Kelsier does slyly intervene with Alamancy, making it look like Demu is dodging and evading and holding off Bilg's attacks. But to the point where Yidin realizes that Demu is in this fight and is having abilities he's never had before. So he thinks Kelsier has the ability to transfer his allomantic powers to other people. And even worse, Kelsier feeds into this. Eventually, Demu does best Bilg. And there's this really intense part where Kelsier contemplates killing off Bilg to set him as an example to those who will, like, doubt or hurt the cause, like, what will happen to them. Yeah, their swords are, like, pushed together and they're in this close contact moment, but Kelsier says, this man should die, and then takes it back a notch and says, no, this is enough. And I really, especially having now read the annotations, think that this scene would be far more powerful if he let Demu kill Bilg. Right, because again, this plays into the all or nothing with Kelsier and the nobility. I also think it could have been a really powerful scene having Demu kill him because... Demu being so altruistic and noble and heroic in his attempts, I feel like would actually not want to kill Bilg. Right, it would sort of sully the moment. Yeah, and he would have regret and fear of what he had done. I think it would have made for a lot more interesting character development. And that's the way that Brandon Sanderson wanted this chapter to go initially, but he was warned off of it by his editors and his alpha readers. I don't know. I think it would have been better. I think it would show Kelsier's willing to push things way too far. Yeah, everything at a price. And it's not just, oh, Kelsier's all or nothing with the nobility, but if he can do this with a Ska who's supposed to be on his side, like, he's gone out of control at this point. Right, and at that point, what's separating him from being different from the Lord Ruler? Exactly, and I think that's what we're supposed to see. So when he didn't kill him, it, it felt like, oh, he's still in control. We don't have as much to worry about. I think because Ham is there and Ham is such a close friend, he reeled it back. Ham was definitely disturbed by the display. Oh, yeah. And it doesn't help that Kelsier is deceiving all of them. And in his confrontation with Ham, Ham is mad because he says, oh, you lied to my whole army. You don't have the ability to give people alimentic powers. You don't have supernatural fighting that you can give to your army. And then Kelsier says, no, I lied to my army. Yeah, it's, it's just, going again, to his head. the ego. Uh-huh. And he even flares their hopes even more with the idea of, you know, again, the 11th medal being uh, their secret weapon and that they will bestow power upon them. And it's just going out of control. I think in retrospect of knowing what Kelsier's real plans are at this point like he doesn't i think at this point he knows he's sacrificing himself for the cause i think that his conversations and his actions here once we know what he's actually up to mean quite different than what he looks like to his friends right with all these conversations that he has with sazed of you know what made religions powerful and you know people became items or things of worship right like icons And so this is what he's doing. He's turning the doubtful into believers. And that's what he says to him. He says, sometimes we need to do things we find distasteful. My ego may be considerable, but this is about something else entirely. 
And then the final sentences of this chapter are so cryptic because we didn't know at the point when we first read. It says, plots behind plots, plans beyond plans. There was always another secret. Ah, so good. And Kelsey even thinks that he wishes he could explain everything to Ham, which of course, as a reader, I was like, what is it? What's going on? That and even that line is very comparable to something a Lendy would write in the journal. Yeah. So I wasn't sure whether or not I wanted to believe Kelsier was good or bad at this point in terms of the way he's treating his friends and the army and the people around him. I know you can't make it black and white, but I was getting very mixed feelings about what he was up to because I felt like he was deceiving a lot of people. And it is technically what he is doing. He does deceive everyone, but it's his attempt to do good by everyone and not let anyone stop what he's trying to do and to sacrifice himself. But man, this chapter just gave me such mixed feelings. I was getting really nervous and sort of sour on Kelsier for a little bit here. Yeah, I was worried about the plot unraveling and it definitely does, but not (laughs) in a way that we were expecting. No, not at all. So I think this was a great chapter in the middle of the book. It's approximately the halfway point. Mm-hmm. Not not right in the middle, but giving you this idea of Kelsier as the hero, the charismatic leader. He's taken Vin under his wing. He's a teacher. And then you start to see he's got this dark side to him that we knew was there with the nobility, but now that we're seeing it more manifesting itself in the way he's treating his friends, it just makes you question quite a lot of things that have been set up already yeah it's like who is this guy what is his true intentions and what is going to happen yeah so it was a great section to put in in the middle of the book i thought this chapter was really important in terms of character development but we also get a lot of plot development in terms of how their planning is going and the army is developing and i liked that we got out of luthadel for a little bit it was nice to have a change of scenery too yeah it was Nice to get some world building. Mm -hmm. I think as these books have progressed into Well of Ascension and The Hero of Ages, I really am just so fascinated with this world and the secrets and characters that it holds. I think in the beginning, it felt very much like a plot device as far as it's a dystopia world and there's ash because it symbolizes like hardship and bleh and sadness (laughs) but as the books develop the world is very real i'm excited for you to eventually finish well of ascension and pick up the third book because there's there's some cool stuff to it i'm working on it i'm just going a little slower because i'm reading like 10 other books at the same time oh i know it's so nice to just always have a a cluster or a handful of books uh leaf through at a given point oh yeah that's how we read in this household (laughs) but that being said i think this is where we're gonna wrap up our episode today with chapter 21 next time we'll be covering chapters 22 and 23 and until next time listeners happy reading thanks listeners if you're looking for more check us out at fantasticbookspod.com we have book reviews, reading list suggestions, merch, and you can even send us a message. Or find us on Facebook and Instagram at Fantastic Books Pod. And if you like what you've been hearing, don't forget to leave us a review. Thanks. Thanks. Golden Rise Media.